There is a higher throne. Friends, uh, one, uh, one other encouragement I want to give you before we plunge into the sermon this morning is uh, be praying for next week as we look forward to having our morning service, a baptism service. And uh, we look forward to see a testimony of the gospel uh, as being presented in the lives of two candidates that will be coming forward uh, to be baptized and proclaim Christ and confess him publicly and pro- profess and confess the power of the gospel to transform them. Uh, we will have Sammy Seaman and uh, also Mary Catherine Wilson with us proclaiming God's grace in their lives. So I encourage you to be praying for that and look forward to, uh, to next week as well. Well, this morning, as we, um, we are already past the series on Acts, we have completed the actual text of the book of Acts, we begin a review of certain themes of this book, uh, a review of some themes that are important for the book of Acts. We have spent about 66 weeks in just going through the text, verse by verse, chapter by chapter in this book, and now we want to go back and look at a theme at a time, and, and look through the whole book of Acts by looking at one theme. If we were to think about what might be the major themes of the book of Acts, you might think, well, the Holy Spirit is, is a very important theme, and certainly it is. Others might say, well, the church is a very important theme in the book of Acts, and certainly it is. But friends, even before the coming of the Spirit, even before the, the spreading of the church, there's someone else who had put all these things together and who planned for these things to come. And then in the due time, in the appropriate time, they came in accordance with his plan. Well, who is he who planned for these things to happen? It is God. It is God. So this morning, as we, as we begin looking at a thematic overview of the book of Acts, the most appropriate starting place to consider is by actually looking at God. Now, how would you summarize who God is based on the book of Acts. If you had one sentence to say or one description of, of who God is based on the book of Acts, what would you say? Well, it's not fair. The, the, the screen already tells you the title. He's a mighty God. If we were to look at, at the God, if all we had was just the book of Acts and, and the gospel of, of, of Luke, if we had just the writings of Luke, how would we describe who God is if that's all we had? He's a mighty God. Now, this morning, I would like for us to, uh, to look at, uh, at one very short passage just to get us started, but really our passage for the whole sermon uh, will be the entire book of Acts and actually even the Gospel of Luke. Um, so, but I would like to read just to get us going Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And as we read this passage, and actually I will read also a few verses from chapter 1. As we read um, these passages, look specifically for this question. What do these texts say about God? They say things about a lot of other things, a lot of other topics. But what do they say specifically about God? So actually, I'm going to start with chapter 1, verse 1 through 8, and then move to chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Here's, Here's the word of the Lord. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, 
appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now turn to chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Well, this is part of, our, of the word of the Lord for us this morning. We'll continue through the sermon looking at other passages in the book of Acts. Well, how can we study God and how he is like in the book of Acts? Well, by looking at all the occurrences that show up in Acts and the Gospels, but just in Acts, noticing what is being said about God in these occurrences. What he's doing, what he's saying, what he promises, Well, friends, um, as I looked at the book of Acts, I found 170 references for God just in the book of Acts, not the Gospels. And that did not include references to the Lord or the Father. So you can, if if we had those, it would be even more than 170. Uh, Don't don't worry, I will not have 170 points this morning. Um, Luke's first description of God appears in, actually in his gospel, specifically in, in the interaction between the angel and Mary, and then Mary and Elizabeth. And this morning, I'd like to look at one of the, the amazing descriptions of God that Luke gives in Mary's song of praise, as Mary speaks to Elizabeth and praises God. Mary says in Luke chapter 1, verse 49, the mighty one has done great things for me. This is one of the first descriptions that we see that Luke gives us of God, the Mighty One. In our passage, in our text, look at exactly, in, in chapter 2, verse 11, look exactly at what were people hearing when the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost. 
Now, when we read this passage, almost always our attention is locked to the fact that they heard them speak in different languages, in different human languages. But Luke tells us also the content of what they spoke. Look at Acts 2, 11, the second half of verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues, what? The mighty works of God. Do you see that? People full of the Holy Spirit are declaring the mighty works of God. God is a mighty God, and His mighty works are on the lips of people who are full by His Spirit. Now, turn with me to Acts chapter 10, verse 46. Chapter 10, verse 46. Uh, Cornelius has called for Peter to come and uh, bring a message from God to Cornelius and his household. Peter is surprised. He nevertheless does because the Lord has led him to do it. He starts speaking to them. And as he's speaking to them, God pours out the Holy Spirit upon Cornelius and his household. And look at verse 46. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Now, another translation, the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates this verse in the following way. For they, were, they heard them speaking in other languages and declaring the greatness of God. Do you see the parallel with Acts 2? When the Holy Spirit falls down on people, what do they speak? It's not just they speak in different languages. They speak the greatness of God. In other words, people full of the Holy Spirit are people who are full of praises for the mighty God. Their spirits rejoice in the mighty works of God. They cannot keep shut. They cannot keep quiet about the great and mighty works of God. That's a characteristic. That's a characteristic of people who are full with the Holy Spirit. Now, friends, just pause for a second and ask yourself, do you struggle to praise God for His mighty works? Do you struggle to praise God for His mighty works? What I mean, do you struggle? Do they come out of you? Do they bubble up out of you? Or do you find yourself like needing to think hard and fast and long about the mighty works of God that you could start praising God for? When it's time to, to praise God, is your well dry or is it overflowing with praises? I think about your times of prayer, your personal times of prayer. Can you talk about God's mighty works in your own quiet private, personal prayer time? Do you, is your heart full of that? Or do you quickly just rush to requests? Do you take time to just enjoy and delight in who God is, in His greatness, in His great acts, in your prayer time, when no one can hear you? What about when we, when we pray together in our evening service? Uh, we begin our evening pr uh, time of, of our service time with a time of praising God. And we just have an open time in which I ask people every Sunday, let's have, go around and just praise God. We read a psalm so that we were reminded some glorious things about who God is in the psalms. And then we just have a time of praising God. 
And sometimes so those times of praise are, are more dry. Other times are more welled up, and the Lord is just reviving us. The Spirit is, is filling our hearts with praise, and we're ready to praise God. Friends, I want to encourage you. When the Holy Spirit is in us, He reminds us of God's mighty acts. You don't have to think long and hard to start to figure out something to, for which to, God, to praise God for. Your soul is already primed up for it. Well, friends, think about when you talk to, a, to someone else, a friend, who perhaps is a Christian and, and is in trouble, and is going through difficulty, or is going through a temptation, or is going through some whatever hardship in his life. Do you tend to bring up a remembrance of the mighty works of God as a way to encourage that person? As I've prayed this week and I meditated on, on these things myself, I, I realized that actually I don't do enough talking about the great and mighty works of God. Friends, let's be more intentional in remembering His mighty works and letting our hearts be strengthened and encouraged to speak of His great and mighty works. Here's what we see in Acts about God's might. Um, there's so many things we could, there's so many points bullet points perhaps I could, I could put together. And the best I could do is to, to sort of put them all in the three big categories about the mighty God. How could we describe the mighty God? Even these three categories would not be enough to really say everything that Acts says about the mighty God. But here are three things I'd like to, to point your attention to. So if you take notes, this is the first thing that we see in Acts about the mighty God. The mighty God, the mighty God, number one, brings about his kingdom. The mighty God brings about his kingdom. The very first reference about God in Acts is when Jesus, after his resurrection, kept teaching for 40 days. And what did he teach about? Not about himself. About the kingdom of God. Look at verse one, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Several times through Acts, um, we see that the early leaders preached the kingdom of God. For instance, Philip, when he goes to, to Samaria um, to preach the gospel there, we are told in chapter 8 that he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. When Paul preached the synagogue in Ephesus in, uh, in Acts 19, he preached about the kingdom of God. And the book of Acts ends with two strong references to the kingdom of God. So the first reality that strikes us about God, as he's described in the book of Acts, is that he is a God who has a kingdom. Friends, there's many gods, there's many idols that we can worship. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, the God that Christians worship, is a God who has a kingdom. He's a God who has a power and reign and dominion. And you know what? He's bringing it to us. He doesn't keep it for himself. He's bringing it among us. So that Jesus, even after his resurrection, he's speaking to the disciples about this coming reign, this coming dominion of God. What did Jesus speak about to his disciples about the kingdom of God? Well, we all know in the book of Acts, specifically, because it's just a summary. But the Gospel of, of, of Luke 
tells us a number of things that Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God. So I want us to go back to the Gospel of Luke, to a few passages, and review what Jesus has taught people about the kingdom of God. Here's just some examples. Luke chapter 9, verse 59-62. To another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus gave a similar instruction to the 70 whom he sent out in Luke chapter 10. He told them in Luke 10 9 what to preach as they are being sent out, as they are entering towns and villages in Judea. He said, preach this, the kingdom of God has come near to you. How does this affect us? How does that affect you and me? This is what Jesus taught the disciples what to say, what to preach, what to teach others. Well, first, when we proclaim the gospel to other people, when we talk to others about the word of God, whether they are Christians or not, remember that we are talking about someone who is bringing his reign and dominion among us. We don't just talk about somebody who has good advice for us, how to make our lives better, how to get out of the trouble we're in. No! We are talking about someone who is bringing his reign among us. We're not talking, telling people simply how to be saved. We're declaring that his reign, God's reign is coming. He doesn't ask for permission for his reign to come. He just brings it. And it will prevail. So we want to encourage people to respond to his kingdom, to get into his kingdom, to seek his kingdom, to await for his kingdom, and to live out the life of the kingdom. Now, to refuse the message of this kingdom, of God's kingdom, is a very serious matter. Uh, Jesus told the 70, here's the instructions Jesus told them, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Those are harsh words. Words of warning. In other words, to oppose the coming of the dominion of a mighty God is indeed a great calamity. But how does this kingdom come? How does this kingdom come? At one point, Jesus was asked by one of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, and here's how Jesus answered him in Luke 17. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Oh, wow. Just let that sink in. And then Jesus gets on, says, Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Strangely, the Pharisees were interested in the kingdom of God, in his mighty reign, but they were looking for a kingdom that was very different than what Jesus taught and brought. The kingdom of God does not come in such a way that it can be observed with our physical eyes. This, part of, this is part of the mightiness of God that his kingdom is coming among us, but we can actually miss it even if we desire it because we might be looking for the wrong thing in it. Well, friend, how much even today people fail to see the kingdom of God some fail to see it because they refuse to see it. Others fail to see the kingdom and the mightiness of God because they look for the wrong thing. 
They have their expectations that are actually different than the expectations of God. They have, they miss out on God's power and might. So we're encouraged to actually recalibrate and know what to look for when we look for the kingdom of God. In Acts, Paul warned the believers in chapter 14 that through many afflictions we must enter the kingdom of God. No wonder that through Acts we see the believers be ready to face afflictions, be, fa- be ready to face challenges and trials and even persecutions. None of this should surprise us. On this side of glory, the kingdom of the mighty God comes among us, and those who respond to it must be willing and ready to face afflictions. That doesn't sound like the mighty God. And yet, this is what we're told about the kingdom of God. But you know what? It's all worth it. With the afflictions, it's all worth it. Jesus assured us of this worth. In Luke 18, Jesus, um, Peter said to Jesus, We have left homes and followed you. And Jesus told Peter, Truly I say to you, there is not one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. To seek and enter the kingdom of God is a costly affair, but it's abundantly, abundantly worth it. Friend, I wonder if you see the greatness of God. I wonder if you see the greatness of God and if that greatness is worth your afflictions. I wonder if you find the mightiness of God to be greater and greater and more greater than all your afflictions and greater enough to overlook and put up with the afflictions that come our way in this life. Or do you expect somehow that the reign of the mighty God would bring us an affliction-free life? Friends, the afflictions we incur in this life should not distract us from longing and desiring to see the kingdom of God. We all want the the mightiness of God, the greatness of God to show His power in our lives, right? But Acts remind us, and here's a second point, one of the greatest ways that people miss the kingdom of God is that they actually don't realize that God's greatness and mightiest acts have already been shown. In Jesus. Here's point number two. The mighty God has showed his great act, or his great acts in Christ. Actually, in the, person of, in, the purpose, in the person of Jesus, the kingdom of God has come in our midst. The kingdom of God has come. The reign of God has come through Jesus. He inaugurated that kingdom here among us. He's the one who brings it. He brought it already in an inaugurated form the reign and power of God were manifested in the works of Jesus. But not only in the works of Jesus, in the authority with which he taught. Remember, when people heard Jesus' teaching, they were amazed because he taught as if he had authority. And it was not just in the words of Jesus. Mostly, the greatest act where Jesus showed, God showed his act was in his death and resurrection. God showed his power and acted his might in, his de- in the death and resurrection of Jesus and actually exalting Jesus also. When Peter began his first sermon in Acts 2, just look from verses 16 through 32. I'm, I'm going to just highlight a few verses, but notice that where Peter starts putting the emphasis, he begins by quoting God's promises in the Old Testament in the, in the, with the prophecy of Joel, what God has declared 
Peter focuses on God's word in the Old Testament as a way to get off, kick off his sermon in Acts 2. And then he goes on in verse, in verse 22 and starts speaking about Jesus. And how in verse 22, Jesus was a man attested to you by who? By God. God attested him with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. And then this Jesus was delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, so that the death of Jesus was no accident. It was a plan of God. His resurrection was also the plan of God. And then Peter goes on and describes the resurrection of Jesus from the Old Testament as well. And then Peter goes on and and speaks about how God raised Jesus from the dead, exalted him, and gave him the Holy Spirit to pour upon his church. And then in verse 37, God made this Jesus to be both Lord and Christ. When Peter gets to preach his first sermon, yes, he preaches about the Holy Spirit. Yes, he preaches about Jesus. But who is the glue that puts all these together? It's God. God is the one who was acting through Jesus. God was acting his greatest promises in Jesus. The people of Israel have seen the miracles of Jesus, but their eyes were stuck on the miracles. They couldn't see beyond that. They couldn't see who was working behind Jesus. Who was working through Jesus? It was God. Next sermon, chapter 3, we could go on in that and, and see how Peter goes on and, and emphasizes how the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. How this God raised from the dead the author of life whom the Jews have killed. The resurrection of Jesus, of course, was the dominant theme in the early Christian preaching. God has acted in Jesus. It was God now who has overcome death by raising Jesus. In, the, in Peter's sermon in Acts 10 uh, to Cornelius, Peter also not only reviews all these elements of how God acted in Jesus, it's like the, the pattern is repeated over and over in the sermons of Acts. But in chapter 10, Peter adds another element that now God has also made Jesus and appointed Jesus to be the judge of the living and the dead, so that through the name of Jesus, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. Friends, the reason why Christians worship Jesus so much It's because God was acting through him. God's power and God's might were mostly, in, in the greatest way, expressed in the life, death, resurrection, exaltation of Jesus. To reject Jesus is to reject the reign of God. To reject Jesus is to receive, to receive Jesus is to receive his reign and kingdom among us. But if you're not a Christian, Realize that God is inviting sinners like me and like you to respond to his coming reign. He wants us to respond to his coming reign before it's too late. And we respond to his reign by embracing the news of this gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of God, how he is now saving lost sinners, bringing us into his kingdom if only we would respond to him. This message of the gospel declares that God is a holy God. He's, he's a creator who made us in his image and likeness. And yet mankind, human beings, 
have rejected God, have rebelled against Him, have acted against His reign and dominion. And therefore, God expelled them out of the garden, expelled them out of His kingdom, expelled them out of fellowship with Him. And if, unless God were to do something, man would be forever lost under the wrath of God. God provided in His mercy and grace a rescue plan. So that those who had been rebellious against Him could actually be wooed back ransomed back, purchased back, won back, adopted back into his kingdom. God's plan is so that that his kingdom would come over the earth and take over the the creation itself as, as it has been God's purpose from the beginning. But that restoration, that bringing back happens only through Jesus. As Jesus paid the penalty of our rebellion, as Jesus paid it through his death on the cross, and then God resurrected him from the dead. And now, all those who trust in Jesus, all those who rely on his sacrifice, all those who believe in his name and turn around and turn away from their sin and repent, they can be called children of God. They can be brought into this kingdom. God is calling people through Jesus to be part of his kingdom. If you are a Christian, Realize that following Jesus is a matter of submitting to God's reign and dominion out of love and gratitude to Him. His reign is not limited only to our hearts. It's not only that His reign comes into our our hearts alone as if it's just a spiritual reality. It also bubbles up into our lives. It also affects what we do with everything in our lives. His reign is... It's taking over every dimension of my life and of your life. As a matter of fact, it's not only His reign, it's not only what happens to us individually as isolated individual beings, but when His reign comes, He actually puts these new citizens together and they start living out in a new community. That's the kingdom of God. That's a reign of God. That's why in when Luke, of all the four gospel writers, Luke is the only one that when he starts the story, telling the story of Jesus, he doesn't end it with the ascension of Jesus to heaven. Luke keeps telling the story of Jesus and tells the second part of that story, the story of the church. What happens to people when Jesus comes into our hearts? What happens to people when the reign of God comes among us and, and takes over in our own lives? We actually start living out the life of the kingdom, not as isolated Christians, but in the community of the church. That's why the book of Acts is the book of the church, and yet it's a book of the kingdom as well. Luke is the only one who does that for us. He doesn't want us to miss out that the gospel doesn't stop with Jesus going back to heaven and just promising that he'll come again. The gospel also encompasses everything in between. The spread of the church. Oh, friends, I pray that you are encouraged that through Jesus, God is acting, has acted in the most amazing way. But you know what? Here's a third point. The mighty God not only acts or has acted in the most and greatest way in Jesus, the mighty God, in a third way, the mighty God continues to act in people, in his people. There are many ways in Acts in which God speaks and acts to his people or in his people. I'm going to give three quick points, sub-points to this third point. Here's the first one of the ways we see very clearly at the very beginning of Acts. 
God works in people to empower them to proclaim the kingdom. God works in people to empower them to proclaim his kingdom. We see that in Acts 1 when Jesus tells the disciples that they will receive the, the power from the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, to be witnesses to him. And to be witnesses to Jesus is to be witnesses to his kingdom. The God of whom Luke writes is a mighty God interested in his people and ready to act among them to set forward his purposes. That's one of the reasons why God promises to give his spirit. In the very beginning, Jesus told the disciples to wait for the promise of the Father so that the mission of the church would be endowed with the Holy Spirit just as Jesus himself was endowed with the Holy Spirit. That's why the entire missionary effort in the book of Acts it's always a response to the leading and empowering of the Holy Spirit. The courage to speak about God's kingdom came from God himself through the Holy Spirit. Also, the direction for how to witness of, to this gospel came from God himself. And even when the Jews were unwilling to take the gospel to the Gentiles, at one point in the book of Acts, there was this expression that they were spreading the word of God all over they went, but only to the Jews. That's a pretty bad sign. That, that, was not a, that, that was not a good thing. I mean, they spread the word of God to everybody, but only to the Jews. And then God in chapter 10 has to intervene in a pretty clear way and correct Peter, the great apostle, and show him that no, it's time for the gospel to be taken to the Gentiles. You know, God is able to correct the mission of the church if they're going on a wrong path. If only the church would be willing to listen. God is able to correct the mission of the church and to direct them in the right path of missions if only the church is willing to listen and depend on God for that direction. God works a second way in people to save them. That's another way we see over and over and over in the book of Acts. God works in people to save them. Well, we, we see it especially when the gospel had to be taken to the Gentiles. And they... Peter was not willing to take it. The Jews uh, gave Peter a hard time with, uh, uh, with, with why he took, went to the Gentiles. And Peter had to explain to them in chapter 15 of Acts, listen, folks, here's what happened. God appeared to me in a vision. I was, I was told not to call clean, unclean, what was clean, what was unclean, clean, what was unclean, clean. And then the Spirit told me, go, and I went, and I... I didn't really want to say much, but I said, they told me there was a message from God I had to say, so I started telling them your story of how God worked in Israel. And before I was over, I didn't even give them a, an invitation to respond. The Holy Spirit just fell on them, and exactly what happened on Pentecost happened to us, to them as well. Who was I to oppose God? I mean, who was I to oppose God? Who was I, who, who's the man to oppose the mighty God when he plans to save people? So we see in, in the book of Acts that it is God who opens a way. In Acts 14, there's this phrase, and when they had arrived and gathered the church together, declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. This is how God is seen working in people in Acts. God is the one who opens a door of faith. Friends, unless God opens it, no one can. What we see over and over is that God is intimately involved in the lives of people in Acts to save them. People can't save themselves. God must save them. All they can do is call on the name of the Lord to be saved, and calling on Him was actually all they could do. 
God had to do the saving. In Acts 5.31, Peter says, God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Amazing, in the book of Acts, even repentance, which typically we associate to be our responsibility, our response, that we give back to God, right? Repentance. In the book of Acts, even repentance is a gift from God. It's amazing. Acts eleven eighteen. when they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God works in people to save him. Well, thirdly, God works in people to build his church. God works in people to build his church. In Acts 2, we are told that the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who are being saved. God not only saves people, but God adds them to the church. People who profess Christ might think today that they have a choice whether or not to become members of churches. Friends, they do not have that choice. To respond to faith in Jesus Christ, to be saved by His grace, means that God adds you to be a member of the church. In Acts 20, it is God who obtained the church with His own blood. And God calls some in the church to be spiritual leaders. And the Holy Spirit makes them elders to shepherd God's flock, to watch over it, to lead it, to protect it. And they're committed to the Word of God and teach it. As Paul said in Acts 20, 32, Paul said, Paul said to them, I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Friends, everything in, in Acts about the church, about the work of the church, is the work of God. Everything in Acts about the work of the church is the work of God. And it should be so. That's why there should be so much prayer in church to depend on God. There should be so much dependence upon God. So much submission to His Word. Unless God builds the church, we won't be able to. Now, don't get me wrong. We can build a crowd. We can build a great movement. But it will not have eternal impact in people's lives. It will not be the work of the kingdom of God. God must work in people in order to build His church. God must build the church if the church will be built. Lord, show us. Show us how to be faithful to you so that you can use us to spread your gospel so that your kingdom would reach both the lost and those who are already saved. They might be encouraged and strengthened. In all kinds of ways, Luke emphasizes that it is God who works in us. It is God who empowers us to be his witnesses. It is God who saves people. It is God who builds up his church as a representative of God's reign in the land of darkness. Friend, this morning, we are coming to an end of this theme of the book of, 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 of theme of God and His mightiness. I feel like we haven't covered enough. There's so much more to say. And yet, I want to close here by reminding us these three categories of how do we see the mighty God in the book of Acts. He's a God who brings His kingdom. He's a God who has showed His greatest act in Christ. His death, resurrection, His exaltation making him judge of the living and the dead. And thirdly, he's a God who continues to act in people today to empower them for witness, to save people, and to build up his church. That's why we need to depend on him for everything. Unless God does it, nothing lasting will happen here. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you that you have revealed yourself in mighty ways. 
You have revealed yourself in mighty ways even in the Old Testament. The prophets, to the, to the patriarchs, to your people Israel. And you have revealed yourself in the greatest way by sending us your son, Jesus. Mighty God, we praise you for the way you have planned by your own authority, in your time, in your way, to bring about your kingdom among us. Almighty God, we pray, would you continue to further and spread your reign, your kingdom, your will among us? Would you continue to work in us, in our own hearts, both individually but also corporately, in our church, and work in the churches spread in the city, and the churches that are gathering and worshiping you throughout the earth this very day? Most gracious God, almighty God, we praise you. For you indeed are worthy of all our adoration. And we pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may we, your people, proclaim that will and proclaim your word until your kingdom is fully manifested at the end of the age. Until that day, we pray that you would be with us. Empower us by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Christ.